0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Eastern European Studies. I'm Kimberly St. Julian Varnin, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Anna Müller about her new book, If the Walls Could Speak, Inside a Women's Prison in Communist Poland. Anna, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. Hi.
0: Thank you for having me. <sighs> I'd like to begin with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Myself. Okay, let me think. Um, so
1: I am. Uh, I was born in Gdańsk, Poland, which is the very north end of Poland. Um, and I um, began my education there. I got two masters there. I got a master in history and political science and uh, then decided to travel west to look for some other... Uh, opportunities to study somewhere else outside of Poland. So for a year, I um, studied in Geneva, Switzerland, at the School of International um, Studies, Graduate School of International Studies. And after a year in Geneva, Switzerland, I decided to, I actually received a fellowship at Notre Dame University in South Bend, Indiana. So I spent the following year at Notre Dame. And there at Notre Dame, I learned about the opportunity, possibility of me actually applying for a graduate school in the state, which I did and started my graduate school in Bloomington University, Indiana University, um, in 2003. Um, And at some point there, I think it was 2007, when I... um, um, left Indiana, left Bloomington for Poland to begin my dissertation, first pre-dissertation research, and then my dissertation research um, that led me to this topic to explore um, a prison cell of the Stalinist post-war post 1945 44 45 prisons in communist Poland. Interesting. So, how did you
0: get into your research in you know post-war communist prisons?
1: my top the, the topic of my dissertation initially was very different i was very much into i was very interested in studying the lives of uh women of solidarity as um you know you probably know um the 1980s in poland um w- witnessed this very this this mass out outburst of social engagement that culminated in um, the emergence of uh, solidarity that helped somehow contribute to the fall of communism. So I was very much this was this was the topic of my dissertation. I was um, really um, fascinated with this form of activism. Uh, and and decided to f- do my dissertation on these women. So in 2006, I think, 2007, one of my first pre-dissertation research summers in Poland, I met with many, a number of these women all over Poland. I interviewed them. I still have a big collection of the interviews with them. Um, and I liked the stories I was receiving, but I f- Felt that there was something that I was missing. There was some kind of a wall between me and this woman that I wasn't able to break through. Um, and I guess now I understand the situation that the 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 not discouragement, but sort of reluctance to talk to me about some of the issues better than I did back then in two thousand six. But anyway, I decided to. Um, maybe interview the women activists of earlier generations. I decided to go back a little bit to the post-war activism and reflect on um, their role in you know, Polish modern post-war history. And one night, one evening, I was invited to this dinner um, of uh, a, f- solidarity, femin- a f- solidarity activist who invited her aunt for dinner, Jadwiga Linszowska, um, and Viga turned out to be a former Stalinist prisoner who received uh, a death sentence that was subsequently um, uh, actually to um, a life sentence. She was imprisoned in 1952. Um, and in 1956, her sentence was changed to 12 years and she was released in 1958. Um, so I spent an evening with her, and she didn't want to talk to me at all. She, <laughs> from the very beginning, she kept telling me that I absolutely am not in a position to understand her story. Um, that nobody can understand what this woman went through.
0: Um, Why do you think that is? Why do you think she felt that no one could understand her experience?
1: I think she, the prison, She 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 actually never sort of made it in freedom after she left prison. She, her family left, uh, her father, I think died when she was in prison. I remember, well, it was either her father or her mother. Her sisters never came back to Poland after the war. They were, um, they left Poland um, towards the end of the war with the Polish armed forces. In the West, um, uh, Jadwiga actually traveled to England where she started architecture. Her sister, Um, went to England and never came back. And yet Viga missed her parents and family so much that she returned. And I think she, for the rest of her life, she regretted this moment of return and her involvement in anti-communist organization that she perceived as a little bit um, sort of crossing a lot of boundaries. They were involved in some assassination of the communist um, officials. Um, And after... She was released from prison. She had a really hard time finding a job. She never married. She actually fell in love with a man uh, in the prison cell. There is a beautiful poem of her engagement to a man she met um, in the prison cell, but he left earlier, and they never met again. So I think she was yeah, I think she was emotionally um, broken, and she never recovered. She never managed to finish her studies that she began before her imprisonment. She managed to get a good job. She never married. Um, my guess is that she, for the rest of her life, she actually missed the man she uh, loved. Um, so she was very bitter. She was very unhappy and very bitter. And then I showed up, and I was the first person that interviewed interviewed her, but I was one of the first people that were interviewing her because she, for years she refused to talk about her experience because it was too much. It was too difficult because it wasn't... Her prison didn't end after she left the prison cell. Like she didn't cross the the Rubicon as one of the other women said. The ones who... It's like the imprisonment in a sense continued. The sense of confinement continued after she left prison. In a sense, almost she was... More free in a prison cell that she was after she left the prison cell. There were more there were almost more limitations for her. So she was very bitter and just not ready to give me a right to understand her story. Um, but there was something in her, there was this very deep um sadness. there was this this um, there was something in her story that pulled me in immediately. I think the depth with which she was talking about her experience, something in her eyes, um, that made me go for it, even though she said, don't even try. And over time, uh, we became friends. I visited her many times. We spent a lot of hours of talking. I didn't record her that much because she didn't like being recorded. She didn't like talking about it. Um, But over time, we became friends. And I actually called her um, after I finished my dissertation, after I defended, I moved from Poland to the United States in 2012. And I called her for Christmas. Before Christmas, I think it was 2011. And she told me, she was again very, very sad. And she said, don't call again. I am um, saying goodbye to and she literally died a couple of months later after our phone conversation. And this was our last phone conversation. Yeah, it was, oh, there
0: goodness. was something
1: in her voice. There was this, there was the way she pronounced it, the way she commanded me not to call her again, because this is it. She's not going to continue living anymore. And she died. Um, I think I checked online a couple of months later and yeah, she was not with us anymore. Um, so that's with her really the the entire project started. Um, after I managed to meet with her a couple of times after I managed to get her to convince her to talk to me, she put me in touch with um some of her friends because it turned out she was a, she had a big network of friends uh from prison. A lot of these women um created those like very dense networks of former prisoners so even though they um this was the this was a very difficult time for them. They act post-prison life was oriented, would center around their prison friends and they pres- and the networks they develop in prison.
0: So Yadwiga is kind of the she's the impetus for the project. So could you tell us a little bit about these women? So what generation are the, most of these women from? So the the, the,
1: the there are the, there are three different generations. Um, of women I uh, was able to interview only two generations. The oldest generations were the women that were born in the 1880s so the end of the 19th century mm-hmm. um, the youngest generation were the women that were born just before the second world war um, the oldest group, the women that were born at the turn of the century uh, really represent a minority Um I didn't manage to talk to any of them. In a couple of cases, I managed to talk to their friends or um, their cellmates. I I guess I can put it that way. The biggest group Mm -hmm. constituted women that were born in the 1920s. So they were born already um, in independent Poland. Poland regained independence after the First World War and these women were really the first generation of uh, women born and educated in independent Poland in the 1920s, uh, early 1920s to late 1920s. And during the Second World War, they got very actively engaged in the anti-Nazi um, resistance. And for many of this, the, the, of these women, their engagement, their activity continued in the years just after the war. The youngest generation, our so-called children of the war, Mm -hmm. um, were the women born in the 1930s, who really towards the end of the war were in their teenage years. So they were essentially coming out of age at the end of the war. So Jadwiga Iniszowska was one of them. She was very young when the war was ending. Mm -hmm. She participated in the Warsaw Uprising, and then um, she was taken out of um, Warsaw after... The surprising failed uh, to an off luck uh, for women and from there she actually traveled to Italy and from Italy to England
0: Wow so the it encompasses a uh, three generations of women so you could would you say that the war is a defining experience for the later two generations more so than the first generation who were born in the 1880s
1: that's a great question because I I feel that for many of these women um, war was a defining experience war was one of the defining experiences because i think it was the prison that was really the defining experience Mm -hmm. and the reason i say it is that the the war and war activism led them to prison because they were essentially in prison for what they did during the war but they continued their life after they released From prison, and the majority of them were released between 1953 and 56. And their life, um, really having in mind everything that happened to them in prison, with the people counting on help of the women that they met in prison, Um, they were helping each other to get a job, Mm -hmm. to support them each other emotionally. They were replacing their families. So in a sense, mm-hmm. prison was this essential uh, experience for them that defined the rest of their lives. So yeah, it's kind, of, it's kind of tricky because it's the war, but also the post-war years, the prison years they were crucial in their cases.
0: Going into how these women would become criminals, because in chapter two of your book, you talk about the imbalance between and power between the interrogator and the criminal. Could you speak to that um, for, for the listeners about how you delve into that aspect in the book?
1: Yes, Um, my intention, um, I really didn't want to base this entire dissertation. It started as a dissertation, so I didn't want to uh, base the entire dissertation later book on on only oral interviews or the documents that I was able to find in uh, private archives. Um, So the Polish Institute of National Remembrance um holds um, a number of documents that relate to political prisoners from this time period. But really, the only thing that they have are those interrogation files, right? And sometimes sometimes those interrogation files are hundreds of pages long. So in some cases, you're dealing with nine hundred even longer interrogation files that are usually typed, difficult to read very um, sometimes tedious, asking this woman what they did on a particular day, and a particular day, and then interrogation ends, and then there is another interrogation, and three days l- later, asking almost exactly about the same things, right? So I guess what, what, what happened is that I kept going through those very, very long interrogation files, and my first impression was like, wow, I, had, I have no idea how to read it. So this was this moment when a historian looks at the historical documents and has no idea how to deal with that, right? First of all, everything that was ha- the, everything that was happening in that room is not recorded there. So the violence is not recorded. Uh, how tired, how exhausted, how scared these women are, or men for that matter, is not recorded. How the room in itself is already an object, um, a tool of violence. None of this is there. So you get this very polished. A transcript of a conversation um and conversation really of a kind of a dialogue and at first i didn't even know that it is possible this is actually a dialogue right how much space these women have to maneuver trying to figure out whether they and there's anything that they can do about this situation is there a way that they can improve uh their predicament um after a number of conversations with these women, I realized that what they were doing in a conversation with me was, in a sense, they were repeating the interrogation, in a sense. They were telling their stories, and I was giving them a lot of freedom to daily, tell their stories. And they were, in a sense, repeating the interrogation. They were asking the questions that their interrogators asked. And they were almost putting me in a position of the interrogator this 50 years later, right? Trying to, A, narrate the story, but the people who sort of frame this narration were the interrogators that they met 50 years earlier. And B, I think they were trying to understand, similarly to me, what happened, what exactly happened in this particular moment. So... After seeing these two things somehow working in tension or not working at all, I decided to just stop interviewing people and just look at the files again, trying to figure out whether there is to actually reconstruct the voices and reconstruct the struggle that is happening in an interrogation room. So again, uh, I gave the reader first the background to... Uh, telling a, a little bit about the violence that is happening there, um, a little bit about the historical circumstances, and then trying to read very closely three cases of inter- of interrogation protocols. Um, uh, before, before actually, before going into the interrogation protocols, the transcripts mm-hmm. themselves, I um, tried to Add a little bit to the context by telling about the different strategies that the women could have employed. Some of them did employ them. some of them talked about this potentiality that they could have, for example, play a role of you know a weak woman or somebody who is able to flirt with interrogation officer or is responding. Actually, those tools were used by both sides because interrogation officers also sometimes, you know, uh, try to flirt with the women in order to get the information they needed. Um, They were threatening them with the life or safety of their loved ones. Um, And after that, I actually tried to reconstruct those three cases of three different women, Barbara Otfinovska, Felicia Wolf and uh, Stanisława Sovinska. And they're th- three very different. Um, Barbara Otwinowska uh, represented the second generation um, of women who were involved in the Home Army, participating in the Warsaw Uprising, and then felt like they were not ready to give up arms after the war. And she continued some kind of uh, political activity. Um, and she she really tried to maneuver during her interrogation. She was uh, presenting herself as um, somebody who was trying to help her cousin because she loved him. She couldn't really understand what's going on. So she was, in a sense, playing a role of a victim, of somebody who did not quite understand the, the, seri- the seriousness of everything she was getting involved in. Um, and I spent many, many hours... Uh, talking to her um, because later on in life she actually established the association of fordoyanki, the women political prisoners, so at some point in her life uh, she was the head of all the activities um, that aimed at um, commemorating the, the commemorating the the these women. Um, she died very recently uh, a month or so ago um, and she she told me a lot about what was going on in her her interrogation protocol. And my sense was that she felt a little guilty that she, with, you know, with the times past, she realized that she was just, that her family and her were trying to get her out of her predicament by uh, suggesting that she can play a role of, you know, um, somebody who's weak, uh, potentially somebody who is not mentally too stable and needs some external support. Um, the other woman, my fav- one of my favorite was Felicia Felicia Neum- Anna Neumann or Felicia Wolf. She actually um, was using two different names, Harfania. Uh, uh, she was an elderly woman who um, was involved in the First World War. Then she was um, a trained soldier during the interwar time period. Then she was very much involved in the second second. World War. And after the war, she was actually helping people to cross the borders illegally to Western Europe. She was arrested twice. The first time, um, when she was arrested, the people who arrested her didn't recognize who she was. They were looking for her. And yet, the way she played her role, they were not able to figure out who she was because she had different documents. She was presenting herself as older. She looked older. She had two different names and until the very end she kept changing her testimonies giving she had two or three different versions that she was um uh, providing her interrogators with depending on the circumstances And until the very last moment she kept telling them that she's not the person they think she is um she was, I call her, eternal conspirator because she was conspiring to the point that when I finally look at her case, I still wasn't quite sure who she was. And there's a beautiful story related to her that some of her friends told me later in her life because she left prison and she was very lonely, um, surrounded by some of her prison friends. Uh, she didn't really have a family of her own. Um, and she lived with she lived with a family of one of her prison cellmates, and at some point when she was an elderly woman, and the anti communist opposition started in nineteen seventies and then continued through nineteen eighties, she she was already bedridden, so her place, her apartment, or her room served as a place where um, opposition members were, for example, leaving a lot of uh, oppositional leaflets, illegal brochures. And her door was always open because she was bedridden. So people had to come and go and not bothering her, not making her get up from bed to open the door. So her door was always open. At some point, police came in and they started looking for those illegal documents. And she you know, was, again, playing a role. She played a role of this very senile person who does not quite know what's going on around her. And she told the police officers, militia, I don't know, there are people coming in and out. I have no idea what's going on. So they found all her dad de- on her desk, some leaflets, confiscated them and left, right? The truth is that the majority of the important documents were actually underneath the mattress that she was sleeping on, right? So she the entire time she knew what was going on, it's just that she was sleeping on a mattress that covered, that was hiding a lot of these documents that she didn't want to reveal. And she never revealed that.
0: That's fascinating. So these women, you talk about them after prison, they have these networks of their fellow political prisoners. So do these relationships that they build, that they have outside of prison after they've left, do you see these being formed while they're in prison? Were they this close while they were in cells together? Or is it something that forms after they've been released from prison?
1: They were formed, I think they were formed uh, inside and after uh, that's one of, that's one of the, that, that was one of my problems because every time I talked to this woman, they were so positive about every single relationship that, they, that developed in prison that it almost felt like it's just too idealized, that they just don't remember the details well. They just, there's something they don't get. And I was trying to give, give the reader a sense that I really don't have negative stories. I'm not saying they don't exist. I just don't have them. So sometimes another document, another type of documents that I was using a lot are in our prison cell protocols. I'm sorry, prison spies protocols. So each cell had a um, prison cell implanted in it, and those cell spies were very often uh, potential conflicts, right? But I went through a number of those um, reports, and there's very little about them arguing with each other, right? Um, there is, from time, to time, some, from time to time, they talk about conflicts between political criminal prisoners. There was usually a big class difference between this woman too. Um, I also noticed that some of these protocols, some of these reports also talk about how these women political prisoners were sometimes trying to turn the conflict into a life lesson that they were giving to the criminal prisoners. So there is that sort of class tension that existed between them. But what I wanted to say is that um, one of my favorite stories, absolute favorite stories, and that's a little related to my next project, is the story of a cell where you have um, two home army women, so two anti-Nazi, anti-communist women, and in the same cell you have two communist women, women who were pro-communism. One of them was Jewish, one of them was not Jewish, um, who were very much involved in building communism after the war. And they both uh, got in prison in this communist sort of witch hunt that started in the 1948. Um, one of them was imprisoned, uh, Eva Pivinska was imprisoned when she was, she, was, she, she worked for the Polish embassy in Paris, and the Polish government sent her to a different um, embassy in Rome. So she came to Warsaw. She had a daughter at this point, and she, was, uh, she actually had two children. She had an older daughter that she left with her parents in Warsaw, and she boarded a train with her 3 weeks old daughter that was born in Paris did, in order to go um, to Rome. Um, And while she was almost crossing the border, the train was stopped and she was arrested with her daughter. She was imprisoned in the cell with these two home army women. Uh, She doesn't know what's happening with her daughter. Um, She's definitely pro-communist. Another woman in the cell is Tonia Lechtmann, a Jewish woman who left Poland with her family for Palestine in 1934, in 1939 she traveled to in 1938, I'm sorry, she traveled to Spain, where she was supposed to fight for the international brigades. She traveled with her husband. they go to Paris. From Paris, they're supposed to travel to Spain. in the meantime she gets pregnant. So her husband travels to Spain while she stays in Paris. And then from Spain, he gets sent to Auschwitz, where he dies in 1945, right? But Towards the end of the war, when Tonya plans on returning to Poland with her, at this point, already two children, because at some point she went to Spain to visit her husband, show him the first daughter, and then she gets pregnant again. So by the end of the war, she has two children. So she travels back to Poland because she hopes that her husband is still alive. And then she learns that he actually died when, during the death march out of Auschwitz in the beginning of the 1945 So she stays in Poland, gets involved into this um, um, activities of actually American activities, American help. Americans were trying to build hospitals in Poland for the war uh, refugees. So she gets involved with with Americans, is a very pro-communist. She's very active. And in 1948, she's imprisoned. So at some point you have these two women, these two communists plus the two home army women and one Ukrainian woman who is a member of the Ukrainian insurgent army imprisoned in one cell. And for everybody who actually knows the context, the history, it's very difficult to expect this woman to actually create any kind of um, friendly bond. Because the home army were fighting with the communists, right? the communists don't really trust the home because they don't really understand why they are in prison in the first place. And then there is this Ukrainian woman that is sort of thrown in between all four of them. And she's both anti-Polish and anti-communist. Um, so, and we actually know a lot about what was happening in the cell because one of them, and I don't know who, but I have my guesses, One of these four women is, one of these five women is writing, turns to be a spy, turns out to be a spy. And she's actually writing reports about the situation in this one cell. Um, So she's telling us a lot about the conversation that these women were having, what they were talking about, who is more open towards communism and who is criticizing Stalin, for example, right? Right. So this cell is actually uh, an ev- evidence of incredible friendship that developed in those conditions where you would not expect, you know, uh, any close intimate bonds to develop. Um, we don't know who was writing the reports. My guess is that it was the Ukrainian woman, um, and the reason for that is because she is the only one who is not mentioned in the reports. But even if it's her her reports are very friendly. She really writes with a lot of understanding for all of them. She talks about uh, these very motherly relationships that develop between them, how they, for example, were organizing protests together, so how they were helping each other, how they were supporting each other emotionally, uh, especially for one of them, Eva Pivinska, who's very, very old, very, very small infant was. She didn't know what happened to her daughter, so she was really desperate. Uh, and the other woman really bonded and tried to help her. This, these relationships continued after the war. After they were released, um, they maintained correspondence throughout the 1960s and 70s. Um, Tonia Lechtman, one of them, <coughs> left Poland in 1968 for Israel, and um, Eva Piwińska and Halina Zakrzewska, the other anti-communist woman kept visiting um, Tonya Lechtmann in prison years later. Um, we don't really know what happened to Vera, the Ukrainian woman. I don't think they stayed in touch. That's another reason why I suspect that she was um, a spy in the cell. But even if that's true, um, I think her reports show respect that she had for
0: everybody in the cell that's fascinating so do the women know that there is a spy in the cell or is this something you find out later in the archives do they have any suspicions that someone's spying on them
1: they usually know they usually they usually know or, or if they don't know they find out after some time plus there are um there are some names there are some women who are well-known spies because they've been in prisons for long and you know the sort of um information travels and um they know and this is sort of passed from a cell to a cell um supposedly um uh, one of the signs that somebody's a spy uh were constant or often um happening conversation with the prison administration so it could be the reasons for any kind of conversation with the prison administration would be either um, an interrogation or some kind of um informing job so if these women were meeting with prison administration often and if they need today cells not exhausted or beaten up or uh, hurt in the, emotionally or distressed, that was very often a sign that um, they are engaged in some different kind of conversation. Because this was something that they knew that almost each one of them was asked at one point or another to uh, report on their cellmates, And I think a lot of them did, more than we think did that and more than would like to admit that. But many of them were reporting on each other, basically just saying what was happening in this cell without being uh, hostile, for example. Just r- reporting on the fears that they were having, right? How they worried about their families, how they worried about their husbands. Many women knew, and this is something, this is knowledge that they, many of them took out of their conspiratory activities during the war, that they are not supposed to be talking about uh, conspiracy or any kind of anti-communist activity because walls have ears so they knew that they're not supposed to be talking about it plus the more and this is something that you know was part of the experience of the war um the no the more somebody else knows the less they are safe right so for your own safety you should not be talking about your past so in a sense the prison is the beginning where they are trying to reconstruct themselves and create new identities for themselves. Um, in separation, some kind of distance from everything that happened to them during the war and the identities that they developed during the war. There were, there were, a, number of, yeah, there were a number of cases where uh, they were finding out how distinguished some of the women were long, long after they, they release. Uh, this, this is a case of Irena... Um, Tomalak, who was really in prison, recognized as um, a prison poetess. She was writing beautiful, beautiful, um, beautiful poems. I'm just trying to check here. And then after the war, after they were released, they actually realized that she was a soldier of the Polish military organization and she was already active during the First World War. And then she was also very active in the military training of women during the interwar wartime period and very active um, um, in the home army. Um, she was very distinguished. And none of the women that were in cell with her knew about this when they were in prison. Irena Tomalak, who was just recognized as a poet, uh, she was the one who actually wrote a beautiful poem about, about Jadwiga Janiszowska and her engagement in a prison cell I don't know if we have a second. I can actually probably find this uh, poem and read a fragment of it.
0: And so, and Yadwiga was the first woman you were discussing the one who really didn't want to talk to you.
1: Yeah. 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 Right. And she, at some point after, you know, really years of having a relationship talking, she at some point just pulled out the letter from prison that she sent to her family or oh, well, maybe it wasn't her letter, it was somebody else's letter in which this poem that I will read in a second was recorded. And this was a poem that uh, Tomalakova, Tomalak Irena Tomalak, wrote to celebrate the third anniversary of their informal um, clandestine engagement with Jurek, a man who was in a different cell. Uh, and then they passed it outside of the, because in prison they were not allowed to write anything so, um, um, I think at some point later during the imprisonment, when she finally, Edwiga finally received a pen and a piece of paper and was allowed to write a letter to her family, she wrote this poem and that's how the poem left prison hmm. walls. Yes. Um, would you like me to read a fragment of it? Um, there were no walls, walk I'm sorry. There were no walks to take, no theater, no... F- Nobody waited with bread and salt in a doorway a wall and cement instead of carpets two separate cells instead of a wedding carriage in no room did two hearts so strongly beat towards each other It was a wedding gazing at the shadow of prison bars and kneeling in front of a wall you promised forever through life and death to march together and to love each other and your Jurek promised as well. Today is your third anniversary. Although there are still no flowers and you're still apart, darling, yearning still weighs through your common poem. But I know that soon the gate to freedom will open towards happiness. And he left Elia. And they never saw Oh,
0: again. goodness. <laughs> so they had this prison engagement for three years at least and then he just left her.
1: Yes, yes, yes. So the poem was sent to her family in 1954. So the engagement took place in 1951. She was released in 1957.
0: And so this kind of leads into the question, if these women weren't allowed to write in prison, how did they know or keep up with their family? So many of the women you talked about had small children, when they went to prison. And so how does that affect their family and how does that affect them and their identities as mothers?
1: Yeah, so they were not allowed to write to their families during the interrogation okay. part of the imprisonment. Once they uh, were done with their interrogations, when they crossed that river, they were allowed to write to their families once a month. It, depending on a the prison, um, there were different restrictions so once a month they were asked to take out their um pens and papers or so they were receiving pens and pens uh, pens and papers and were sitting outside of a prison cell writing letters to their families and this was the moment when um that's why i think the interrogation crossing finishing interrogation is almost like a crossing a threshold because you can uh renew after a trial can renew try to reconnect with your family and that's the moment when you can start writing Um, to your mothers, to your fathers, to your families, to your boyfriends, husbands, lovers, uh, and children. Um, And some interrogations lasted up to five, six years. Mm. So it was often very, very dramatic because many of these women left little children and many of them were not able to reconnect with their children after they were able to keep writing. Part of the problem was um, the children very often didn't know who their mothers were. The grandparents were afraid to actually reveal um, that their parents are in prison because this is a very uh, politically tense time. So sometimes it's better for the children not to know that their parents are in prison. Some of the children, like the children uh, Vera and Martha Lechtman, um, the children of Tonya Lechtman, uh, the one Jewish communist woman that I already mentioned, they were in an orphanage. Mm. And Nobody really knew where they were, so it wasn't easy it wasn't easy to communicate with them. Um, I had a chance to look at a number of collections that that um, in, contained letters of matters to their children so in some cases, you have stories of children that were you know in their early teens and were um, in prison with their matters revealed released elderly and then there's sort of after this interrogation time period when the mothers were finally allowed to start writing to them, they were, they try to mother them. They try to be a parent from a distance, mm-hmm. um, which is incredibly difficult and it's really heartbreaking. Um, they talk a lot about the constant, the, con- they very often, had with other women in a cell, what kind of advice they should be giving to their daughters and sons, how they can, you know, bridge the distance, the mental and physical distance that exists there. Um, but this is probably one of the most difficult things that um, that they experienced, and I uh, and I don't know whether this is a good moment to say it, but at the moment I'm teaching um, a prison, in prison. It's called Inside Out Prison Exchange class. And, and the class consists of 15 outside students or students of University of Michigan-Dearborn and then 15 inside students, which is the prisoners of uh, the prison where we teach this class. And the thing that is a man who, who carries sometimes very long, uh, sometimes live sentences, very long sentences, um, and one of the most tragic, most difficult part of imprisonment for them is the separation from their children. Mm-hmm. And this fear, they fear that since these children don't have a parent, don't have a father to uh, help them grow, they may end up in prison as well because they are deprived of uh, role models.
0: And, and did the, my, the um? Ahead. so I'm just going off of that, do the women, do they have that similar fear that yes. their children?
1: Uh, yeah. Yes. That's what, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I want to say. Exactly that, that they are afraid of depriving the children of having role models. So in their letters, they very often try to recreate those imaginary role models for them. They talk about their fathers that sometimes was long dead and the children never had a chance to meet them or grandparents or even themselves. Of course, all these letters are the very censored. So there is, there is very little they can say in the letters. So sometimes it's this very um, delicate walk that these women make in order to create kind of an imagined role model for their children, for their sons and daughters. Mm-hmm. To give them some kind of directions um, in how they should, hoping that they can affect somehow their um, the early adulthood or you know coming out of age. Um, and there is a number of interviews recorded with. Do you hear the dog? Is a dog barking. Mm-hmm. Should I get rid of them? No. Okay,
0: sorry. Oh, we're fine. <laughs> um.
1: So, uh. Oh, gosh. Okay, let me, let me, let me... I'll take her out, okay? Is that okay?
0: Okay. You go.
1: Okay, I'm back. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no, you're fine. Um, where was I? Okay. Um. Oh, I know. So, I uh, talked to some of... But not many of the children of the women prisoners, but there's a number of those records out there that I had access to. And um, many of them are still bitter about it about hmm. because sometimes they see this distance that existed for years between them and their parents as consequence of their political engagement, right?
0: So that's interesting. So you have these women following, you know, the fall of communism in Poland, and it seems like they're celebrated because of their anti-communist stances, but their children aren't necessarily a part of that.
1: I think it just, it started, it's, they, they were learning how to appreciate that. Right? but that's ironic mm-hmm. with time, because you know the sixties, seventies, and eighties are very difficult politically in Poland, and these women don't really talk about their experiences uh, until late nineties because they are very afraid of actually talking about everything that happened to them. So they are mm-hmm. opening up very, very late in life. So children very often don't know what happened, what exactly they went through. The women are afraid of sharing these stories because they're afraid that the stories may be still dangerous and get children in trouble, right? Something is broken there. And it takes decades for this link um, to be revealed. And actually people, decades until people feel that they're ready to talk about this. And for many of these people, it's too late. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, their matters are gone or the distance between them is too great
0: to be bridged. That's fascinating. And so... Do you think that your book kind of helps those families? So if their parents or their mothers have passed away before they can talk about their experiences, do, do the other experiences of the other women kind of help them reconcile with the with the fact that their mothers or grandmothers also went through, the, through those experiences? Uh,
1: I think so. Although I have to say that when I started uh, collecting the stories, um, many people already felt that it's actually that being sort of engaged in the anti-communist opposition is something that is elevating an individual on many, many levels. So, uh,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it's a good question. I don't know. I would say I hope maybe in some cases. I think maybe what helped is the fact that having a historian interviewing, probing you, asking you about your family is... Opening up some issues to new reflections. Uh, mm-hmm. So, maybe that's what's hopefully pushed some of them to think about their past and reopen some of the chapters of their life that they thought were closed. I don't know. I don't, I am not sure I have an answer to this question.
0: And that's fine. It's one of those things where you have such an is- interesting research topic and interesting work because most historians, we're dealing with issues that are kind of, they're settled. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily still involved in the cultural life of the country, but your topic is still very much involved yeah. in Polish cultural life. And so it's an ongoing and changing.
1: Yes, very much. Topic. Very much so, especially now. Yes, very much so. It's very true.
0: So Anna, we've taken about, you know, an hour of your time today. So to wrap up, um, would you like to tell us what are you working on now?
1: Uh, yes, with great pleasure. Uh, so what I decided to focus on uh, is uh, I'm writing a biography of Tonia Lechtman, this um, communist Jewish woman who was imprisoned uh, in Poland, uh, partially because um I learned a lot about her during the, my work on this book. Plus, I realized, I discovered this incredible collection of letters that she kept sending to her family from um, actually, you know, she, as I told you, she left Poland with her family in 1934. And one reason why she claims, at least, or she claimed because she died, um, that her family left Poland in 1934 was because she, Tonya and her brother were getting too much involved with communism. So the parents were afraid that, you know, the Jewish children from good, uh, relatively rich family of which industrialists are getting too much into communism. So they left um, for Palestine. Then she traveled with her husband, Russian Jew to Spain. And from 1938, she kept sending letters to her family in Palestine and then later Israel throughout the entire war from different places. So she has two Jewish children. She's hiding in Switzerland, in France, in different places in Europe while sending letters to her family in Palestine. And this entire collection uh, is preserved. Um, So there's that part of her story, of her life story. And then there is the story of her involvement in communism when she returns to Poland with all this energy And actually decides to uh, put her children in an orphanage because she's too involved with building new Poland. So she doesn't really have time for her children. Um, uh, And then gets imprisoned by the same communist regime that she was working so hard. And even though that happened, she still remained a communist and really leaves Poland only in 1968, when her children decided that they just cannot be in poland anymore um some of your listeners may be familiar with the movie polish movie by uh, directed by Bugaiski titled interrogation it's a movie about um a woman tonia uh who um is a singer a cabaret dancer I may maybe i maybe i may not Actually, I don't remember the details of who she exactly is, but she is having an affair with um, with secret police officer and she gets imprisoned. Uh, and she is hysterical in a prison cell. She cries, she screams, and she's sort of slowly becoming stronger and stronger in a prison cell. Some people claim that Tonya Lechtman, the Jewish woman that I am working on, is... A model for the interrogation the movie interrogation which i hope wow. to find out more about it but there are definitely some similarities between two
0: tonias yeah there's more that sounds like a fascinating project I, I hope so i
1: i really i really find it fascinating and yes and i hope um i already have, i have two chapters written and i hope that this is something that um, I will be able to finish relatively fast because the story has been with me for many, many years now. And I think I know it um, very deeply. And yeah, and I, I hope that it will be interesting to others as
0: well. Well, Anna, that sounds like a potential movie that you have <laughs> as a project. <laughs> and I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. I think the listeners are going to love it. Take care. Thank you.
1: Thank you for having this conversation with me.